Well, this is the time in our gathering when we turn our attention to the preaching of God's word. And we've been in a series called Crown and Cross. We've really just been walking our way through uh, Mark's gospel. And so uh, the first half of the book, we're calling The Crown because it focuses on the fact that Jesus is our true king who has come to deliver um, his people. And in the second half of the book, we're going to notice a sharp turn right around chapter 8, Things are going to start to get a little bit more grim as we move towards the cross, which focuses on the fact that for this king to deliver his people, this king would have to die. But he's not going to stay dead. A little spoiler alert, right? He's going to raise from the dead on the third day. And we're going to see how the crown and the cross actually come together to show off the goodness and the glory of Jesus Christ. We find that Mark wrote his account so that we would forever have Uh, and an account of the real Jesus, not some mythological version of him or uh, even a Jesus of our own fabrication. Um, A made-up Jesus, friends, cannot challenge you. A made-up Jesus cannot ever contradict you. And therefore, a made-up Jesus is unable to change you. And that's really what we're going for here as we turn our attention to God's word. And so today's next episode uh, is called The King's Company. We're going to look at who the group of disciples, who this, who's going to ride with Jesus to fulfill his mission. And we'll see that in Mark 1, 16 through 20 and uh, Mark 2, 13 through 17. Let me pray as we open up um, God's word. And so, Father, thank you that you have spoken. You have given us your word that we could have life because they point to Jesus. And so as we turn our attention to these words, Lord, help us to see him. Help us to to savor him, to to be delighted by him. Lord, that you would uh, uh, speak to our hearts today. It's not enough that we just learn more about him. But as we know him, Lord, let that drive us to love him and to want to follow him. We need your spirit to do that work in our lives, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So it's no, like, great, um, it's no great surprise or, like, uh, that, that we live in a Twitter and Snapchat and Facebook kind of driven world, right? That's not news to you. You know that, right? I mean, some of you right now may be having something buzzing in your pocket with some kind of uh, notification. And as, as I was thinking about uh, our, our, our passage today, I mean, Jesus is going to say, come follow me. And as I was thinking about that word follow, it's really lost a lot of its weight. Because in our culture today, we can follow someone on social media and it costs us absolutely nothing, right? I mean, you just with a quick click, you can be following somebody. And you can uh, check in on your own schedule. You can pick and choose who you follow. You can pick and choose what you retweet, what you like, what you put the little heart next to, right? And people like to have a lot of followers too, right? As I was looking around, there, there's like companies that will help you gain a following of people. It's like, hey, how to get to your first 1,000 followers. There's blogs written about like the method, kind of tried and true on how to get that to happen. But when you have a lot of followers, it's not like these people actually care about you, right? I mean, uh, we, were, we were looking last night uh, uh, at some of the top followers on Instagram. I think Selena Gomez is at the top right now. Do you think she cares about the 105 million people who are following her on Instagram? She doesn't even know them. She didn't care about them at all. And if we don't like what someone says, what can we do? Unfollow them. Just as quickly as we click to follow them, we're unfollowed and we're out the door. We follow to suit our tastes and needs at the moment. And in our passage this morning, Jesus is going to meet several men. He's going to call them to following him. 
But following Jesus is not the way. Following Jesus um, is going to be very different, dramatically different, radically different than following someone on social media. And so as we look at our passage this morning, we're going to see Jesus start to form this company. That The crew is going to help him fulfill the mission that he came to do. And as we look at his call, we're going to see um, not only is it a call for others out there, but it's actually a call. It's an invitation for us right here, right now. And so which begs the question, are we called to follow him? Or are we just called to know about him and to know, okay, that Jesus, is, he's doing his thing over there. But does it actually require anything of me. And not only that, not only is he calling me, but do I even meet the requirements? I mean, some of you might be thinking, like, I, I don't know why he'd want me on his team at all. I don't fit the bill. And not only will we see that Jesus has a call and a company, but we're going to see that as Jesus is calling people into uh, ministry with him, that there's going to be a confrontation because lines in the sand are going to start to be drawn. And so as we go, let's, let's start in uh, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 16. We'll have the words um, on the screen there, and you can also follow along in the Bibles um, out in, uh, underneath the chairs. And so here's what Mark says to us. Verse 16. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the, uh, and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Verse 17. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Okay, so this episode takes place along the Sea of Galilee, which is really, we call it a sea, but it's really just a big lake north of Jerusalem, about 80 miles or so. And this is going to be the scene for the next couple of episodes as you're tracking through uh, the Gospel of Mark. And we saw last week how Capernaum kind of became the home base ministry operations for Jesus and his ministry. And so as the text opens up, Jesus is passing by the Sea of Galilee, and he comes upon um, Simon, who's also known as Peter, pretty famous Christian, the Apostle Peter, right? And Peter is there fishing with his brother Andrew. They're out there working hard, trying to earn a day's living. And likewise, later on, we're going to see that Jesus is going to meet another couple of fishermen, James and John, out working with their father, Zebedee. We find out in John's gospel that these guys had actually met Jesus before. They had gone out with uh, John the Baptist, and they had, they, they'd heard John's ministry. They were guys who were eager to, uh, to repent. Uh, they, they believed that the kingdom was here. They had heard John say that we're pointing to someone who's coming that's even greater than me. Maybe these guys were even there on the day um, that Jesus got um, baptized. But, they, but whatever happened, they went back on their way, and they're fishing, and now Jesus sees them. And he says to him, come, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. So let's unpack this call, okay? A bit of context, right? If you were growing up in the first century, it was very common uh, in, this, in, 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 uh, in, in Israel um, for rabbis to have disciples. And so if you were a rabbi, you had people who were following you. They were your pupils. They were your learners. And they were trying to learn the law from you. They were trying to learn how they could become these teachers and, have, uh, and, and, and help the people of God know how to um, follow the law. And so typically students would, um, as there's different rabbis coming around, they would kind of choose which rabbi they wanted to follow. Um, and if that rabbi saw potential in them, they would take them on as disciples. 
a kind of a way to think about it is like applying to a college, right? Uh, you, there's all these colleges out there. Uh, you kind of pick the one that you want to go to. You send in an application, and if they think you've got merit, they accept you, and you get to go to that school. But these are the guys, Andrew and uh, uh, James and John and Peter, these are the guys who didn't make the cut. These are the guys who didn't get into rabbi college, okay? They weren't at the top of their class. And so instead of following the path of some prestigious rabbi, they followed in their father's footsteps and became fishermen. Now, what's immediately different about Jesus is that he is a rabbi who goes and seeks out disciples. Remember I said it was commonplace for you to go find the rabbi. They didn't have time for you. You had to come and seek them out. Jesus is going and seeking out his disciples. And he doesn't say, come learn a bunch of stuff from me so that you can be good teachers. He actually makes it much more personal. He says, come follow me. Right? He's drawing them in to this relationship. And they begin to follow him. Now, mind you, they have no idea where he's going. Right? It's not like Jesus said, uh, here's what's going to happen. Let me chart out for you the next three and a half years. He just sends out the invitation and says, come follow me. And all they know is that John had said this was the one. All they know is that there's something different about Jesus. All they know that he has bid them come, and in their gut they know, I have to go. And the call they heard that, month, that morning while they were fishing was more demanding than anything they had ever heard. It was more urgent than anything they had ever heard. But it was also more appealing, and something about it was so sure, more than anything they had ever heard. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? Right? If it's not like what we do on social media, what does it mean for you and me to follow Jesus? Well, in short, to follow Jesus really means to worship him. And some of you may be thinking, that's a jump, man. You went from following to worship. But following in its truest sense means an allegiance. There's a trust there. Following means intimacy and identification. I'm with him. Following means relationship. And in the biblical sense, following comes with a cost. And if you add all that up, the shorthand for that is following means to worship. So wherever he leads, they are to follow. And what's beautiful about following Jesus is it doesn't lead to their oppression. Because if you follow the wrong person, right, it can go bad. But following for the disciples actually leads to their transformation. What does Jesus tell them? He says, follow me and I will make you to become. That word, make you to become, involves a change. Jesus is saying there's going to be a transformation that's going to take place over time. I will make you to become. Not in the blinking of an eye, but as we go on this journey, there's a process. There's a transformation that's going to take place. And so that begs the question, if he's going to change them, right, he's going to change them into what? And at the end of that sentence, he says, I'll change you from being fishers of fish to be fishers of men. He gives them an analogy that they can understand, right? These are fishermen. They know what it means to fish, but Jesus is going to change the object of their fishing. He's going to change the trajectory. Instead of going out and fishing for fish, they're going to go and uh, fish for men, which may sound kind of odd, right? Now, what you have to know is in biblical and Hebrew symbolism, the sea is a place of chaos, It's a place of death. It's a place of darkness. It's a place of coldness. It actually represents the kingdom of this world. 
Say, I'm not trying to like knock going a, like a nice day at the beach, but I'm saying like in the ancient world to go out to the sea was a dangerous thing. Most people didn't make it back. And so what he's saying is that you guys are going to be fishers of men. You're going to be a part of God's rescue plan. You're going to pull people out of the darkness. You're going to pull people out of the chaos. You're going to pull people out of the sea of death into the shore of life and light. He's calling these guys into a relationship with him where they can trust him and where they can treasure him, but also where they'll have a purpose that's beyond just getting a day's living now, this call to follow him comes, uh, it, it's predicated upon obedience. And following Jesus is an obedience without conditions. What he's saying is, follow me and I'll make you become. He doesn't say, follow me if or follow me, you know, when. He's saying, follow me. And Jesus is on the move. If these guys don't want to follow him, he's going to move on to the next place. What Jesus is saying is, I will not be used. Let me unpack that. If there are any conditions on your obedience of following someone, any conditions at all, Jesus is saying, this is not going to work. So if you say, I will follow you, Jesus, if things go right, right? You've put a condition on your obedience. Or you might say, I'll follow you, Jesus, if my career heads in the right direction. Or maybe you're saying, I'll follow you, Jesus, as long as my health stays good. Or as long as my family stays on track. Or maybe you're saying, I'll follow you, Jesus, as long as I'm happy, as long as I'm comforted, as long as I'm content. I'll follow you, Jesus, as long as you stay relevant to me. The problem is that following Jesus doesn't guarantee that any of these things are going to go right or how, that anything is going to go exactly how you've planned. That's, and that's not really what Jesus promises, right? He's not giving you a false bill of goods. He never said that that's what's going to happen. What has he promised? He's promised to change you to transform you, to be with you, and to be near to you. So whatever is attached to your if, I'll follow you, Jesus, if, whatever that thing is, that's actually the thing you're following. That's actually the object of your greatest desire. If I could be so bold as to say, it's actually your real master. That's the real goal. That's the thing you really want. And so if there's something that's non-negotiable, you're saying, Jesus, you can't have this. It's not on the table for you. I'll follow you, but this stays with me. It's not up for negotiation. Whatever that thing is, that's actually the object of your greatest desire. But Jesus will not be used. He will not be a means to your end. If you're going to follow Jesus, hear me, he has to be the goal. He has to be the one that you're going for. And so Jesus is saying, don't follow me for the benefits that come along with it. Don't follow me for the things that you think you'll get if you follow me. Just follow me because I am your true king. Follow me because I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And here's the beauty of it. When that is why you're following him, when he's the object of your greatest affection, your greatest longing, you'll find that all the things you've actually been longing for will find your fulfillment in him. You find out that the things you've actually been chasing were just cheap imitations that won't really satisfy you anyway. And so before we move on, 
I think it's helpful to give us a definition of this kind of discipleship. We're going to kind of keep coming back to it. So if you're taking notes, this is a good one to write down. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Here's what it is. A disciple, one who follows Jesus, is one who is increasingly worshiping Jesus in all of life, being changed by Jesus, and obeying Jesus' commands. That's what it really means to follow Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus. And that doesn't mean you have to have all this worked out on day one. The disciples certainly did not have it worked out on day one. This is what we're being, this is, this is a life, uh, it's a journey, it's a progression towards this idea where we're growing. That's why increasingly is an important adverb there. We're increasingly growing in our worship of Jesus, increasingly being changed by Jesus, and increasingly obeying Jesus' commands. And so that's the call to follow Jesus. It's radical, it's costly, but friends, it leads to our joy and our transformation. Okay, let's keep moving. Let's gonna flip over, uh, flip over to chapter two and let's look at verse um, 13. If that's the call, who is Jesus calling? Who is his company? Look with me at verse 13. It says, Jesus went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. Okay, so last week we looked at the healing of the paralytic, okay? This happens right after that. You can almost imagine everybody needs a change of scenery. It's jam-packed in there. Like the roof isn't stable anymore. Um, We've just seen a miracle. It's time to get some fresh air. Let's walk outside. We've got the Sea of Galilee right there. A good change of scenery. So they go out, and again, crowds start to form. Remember, crowds are trying to get into this tiny house. Now Jesus is outside, and crowds begin to form again. But remember, I said this last week, it's worth repeating, excitement and proximity to Jesus does not equal intimacy and relationship. Just because you're excited, just because you're kind of near Jesus doesn't mean that you have an intimate relationship with him. Look at verse 14. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, the other thing you need to know about Capernaum, where they're at right now, is that it was a border town. And so between the two provinces of Herod Antipas and uh, Philip the Tetrarch, this is like a border town between these two different regions. It's also a place where the Via Maris, which is an ancient Mediterranean, highly trafficked travel route is happening. So you can imagine this, this place saw a lot of travelers going between towns and coming through on these different trade routes which is the perfect place if you're going to be a tax collector, right? You've got all these people coming in, and you've got the authority with the Roman government to stop anybody you want and go, hey, what do you got in the bag there? Hey, what would you bring off the, uh, off the sea today? What was your catch? Because I want mine. This is a perfect place for the tax collectors to set up their booth, right? And it's here that Jesus meets a tax collector named Levi. Now, Levi, uh, you might also know him by Matthew, in the ancient world, it was very common to have kind of two names, right? And so Matthew, he, he actually gets a, he writes a book of the Bible, right? You want to think about the transformation that's heading for this guy, okay? But that's Levi. That's who Jesus meets. Now, when we think about tax collectors, don't think IRS, okay? It's actually far worse than that. Tax collectors worked for the Roman government, which was occupying Jerusalem. And what they would do is they would hire Jews who worked for the Roman government and they were to collect taxes in order to finance the, the empire. Now, Rome had a set amount that they would get, but they kind of had this arrangement where they would say, you're allowed to take as much extra off the top as you want. 
And so if I need like 100 denarii, if you can get 200, you can take that extra for you. And what happens in this system is that people who are greedy want to take more than their fair share, right? An honest living makes sense, right? Everybody's got to put kind of food on the table. It's a bad job, but somebody's got to do it. Man, just get an honest day's living. But what happened is that that these tax collectors would seize this opportunity to oppress and extort their fellow countrymen. And it was reported in the literature of the day that tax collectors would use scare tactics, threats, beatings, even murder to get what they wanted. And so don't think IRS. Think mafia. Think thugs. I mean, it's literally like a, um, uh, they're, they're thieves with badges on. Tax collectors were so despised in this time that they were considered perpetually unclean. So what this means is you could not come to God. You couldn't go to the temple. You couldn't go to the synagogue. They were cut off from God forever. There was no grace, no mercy, no forgiveness for these guys. This is who Jesus walks up to. This is Levi. And what does he say to him? Levi, come follow me. I mean, he's a rabbi school dropout just like the other guys, but he was a traitor. I mean, Levi is a real scumbag. I mean, can you imagine this scene with me? Jesus has his, his newly, like, minted disciples. They're walking. He sees Levi, and Jesus says, hey, come follow me. And these guys are going, him? He's going, me? Like, you, you want me? I mean, he wasn't just a tax collector. He was their tax collector. All these guys ran in Capernaum. This guy had probably given them the shakedown before. This guy had taken money from them, their friends, their family. Him, Jesus? Do you know who this man is? How many times had he stopped their boat and taken their catch? How many times had they uh, tried to skirt away from this guy and he grabbed them by the collar? How many thousands had he taken from them just because he could? It's like Jesus is intentionally stirring the pot. He's like, okay, you guys are good old boys. Let's throw a tax collector in the mix. He's trying to take all your categories, all your assumptions, and turn them inside out. What we're supposed to see from this is that the gospel changes everything. Jesus is choosing men from all walks of life to join his company. These first four guys, they're tradesmen. They're middle class. Now we've got a thug joining the mix, a guy with a dark past, Later, we're going to see a guy add a, 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 he's going to add a guy from noble birth, a man with credentials. Later, he's going to add a doubter, a pessimist. Later, he's going to add a zealot to the mix, a national who hated the idea of Roman occupation. How do you think he and Levi are going to get along, right? So in this group, you have the right, you have the left, you have the middle, you have the grown-up religious types, and you have the I gave up religion a long time ago types. You have the formally educated, you have the street educated. You have the wealthy, and you have the barely scraping by. You have the noble, you have the ignoble. This is a diverse crew. And they're supposed to love each other. They're supposed to get along. They're supposed to live in such a way that other people see them and go, there's something different about that crew. Because there's no way people that diverse could come together, get along, and have something in common. But what do they have in common? Jesus. He has called them. He is changing them. He is transforming them. Jesus said the one distinguishing mark that they should bear is love. So what do we see about the king's company, right? We see that they're diverse. 
and that they come from different backgrounds. They all have these different issues. They have different hang-ups and origins, but God is calling them to follow him. And this king is unlike any other king who chooses his company based on your pedigree and accolades. What Jesus is saying is your resume is no good here. Like your good resume is no good and your bad resume, your rap sheet is no good. The only requirement to following Jesus is this. There isn't one. You don't have to have any kind of prerequisites. So what about your past? Doesn't matter. But what about all the good I've done? Great. But that doesn't get you higher standing and it's not the basis of your following Jesus. You're invited into this relationship and into this mission simply because the king wants you there. He wants you there. Doesn't need you. He is perfectly capable of fulfilling this mission on his own. He's got all the power and all the wisdom and all the knowledge in the world, but he invites us in. And that should give us purpose and meaning as we're following him. The king's call is radical and transformational. His company is diverse and open to all, based on grace, not on pedigree. So let's look at the next verses to see why that brings confrontation. Look at verse 15 with me. And he reclined at table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Okay, the episode changes scenes really quickly. Like, like sometimes in a TV show, it just whoop, switches over, right? The next thing you know, Jesus said, come and follow me. And the next thing you know is we're at uh, Levi's house and we're having a meal. It's a dinner party. And they're reclining at the table. And a normal meal, you would sit upright. It was quick. But this was a feast. They're re- reclining at the table. They're celebrating something, right? And who's on the guest list? Who comes to this party? Levi's crew. It's other tax collectors and sinners. I mean, imagine who this guy runs with, right? He runs with the drunkards, the lowlifes, the drug dealers, the prostitutes, the unseemly. And Jesus is eating with them, hanging out, having a great time. See, that's how Jesus rolled. He met people and had dinner with them. His ministry, if you could boil it down, was really like a dinner club romancing around ancient Palestine. That's why our gospel communities are centered around a meal. There's something about a meal that draws people together. In fact, later on in his ministry, people are going to come to Jesus and accuse him of being a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And they're going to say, man, Jesus, it seems like all you're doing is eating and drinking. See, they knew that Jesus hadn't become drunk and gorged himself on food, but they saw him eating with people so frequently and so often Um, that these accusations kind of came out of that. And what we find is that Jesus is simply doing what God the Father had been doing from the very beginning. You remember the book of Exodus, right? The people of God were enslaved in Egypt, and God raises up Moses to, to get the people out, right? Let my people go. In the movies, they always cut out the Bible, right? In the movie, it's just let my people go. But if you go back and read in Exodus, he says, let my people go. Why? that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. God is saying, I want to deliver my people out of bondage and slavery and go have a meal with them. It's like God is trying to get back to that relationship in the garden where they ate together and they walked in the cool of the night. Let my people go. We haven't had a meal together in a really long time. 
And so Jesus is inviting them into this meal. Jesus was um, always accepting and showing hospitality, inviting others to dine with him and dining with them. And so we define hospitality around here like this. It's relational generosity. Relational generosity. So here's what we mean. It is our goal that we would open up our tables with neighbors and others and outsiders and in our networks and do so with gospel intentionality, with a ton of prayer, and see what God starts to do as he transforms those meals. Because God wants to do something at your table and through your table. So it begs the question, who should you invite to your table in the coming days for a meal? I mean, maybe you could invite your local IRS agent to be really biblical here, right? But if you don't know your local IRS agent, maybe you could just begin with your neighbor or your coworker or someone from your network. That would be a really great place to start. And as you start to dine with uh, outsiders, people who are unbelievable, people who would say they're far from God, you're going to see this is really how neighbors become family. It's, really, uh, it's, at the, it's at the center of a table where we really start to see transformation happen. Okay, so what happens next? Jesus is at this, this dinner party. Look who shows up in verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? You can almost hear the condemnation in the question, right? Somehow, scribes and Pharisees have crashed the party. Like, I don't even think they were really invited. But somehow or another, they show up poking their nose into other people's business. Jesus is really starting to get on their nerves. I mean, can you feel it? They're just asking all these questions. Like, why? They just can't wrap their minds around why Jesus would be eating with the likes of these people. I mean, no respectable Jew would ever eat with them, let alone the guy who's supposed to be the Messiah. These guys cannot stand the company that Jesus keeps. And they're looking at him like, he's eating this meal. See, eating with somebody means you identify with them. That doesn't require us to know a whole lot about first century culture. That's still relevant for us today. We don't eat meals with people we can't stand, right? We don't eat meals with people we want to avoid. We eat meals with people we want to identify with. It all started back in the lunchroom in elementary school. You remember that? Kind of like the first time you're thrown in with all these people and you start. It's like the cliques already start gathering. Then from elementary school, it gets awkward in middle school. And then in high school, it's just downright mean, right? You couldn't pay me to go back to the high school lunchroom. And it continues right into adulthood. And so these guys are asking Jesus, why is he eating with them? Verse 17. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus kind of always overhears your like side conversations. It's one of the things about him. And so he confronts them. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, right? It's kind of common sense, right? He's like, I'm not coming to call the righteous, but sinners. He defends the company he keeps based on their spiritual need because that's exactly why he came. I mean, think about this. Imagine a doctor who refuses to see sick patients. I mean, what kind of a doctor would that be? Can you imagine a gunshot victim coming into the ER, the surgeon running out, seeing blood and going, oh, man, you better get that taken care of, right? I mean, it would be ridiculous. Or imagine you have like this rash, nasty thing, and you go see a dermatologist. He walks into the room and he's like, ooh, hey, buddy, get away. I don't want, I don't want to get that, right? When you get that taken care of, come and see me. 
right? It would be preposterous. It'd be ridiculous. Jesus is saying, not only is it permissible for me to mix with this company, it's actually the reason why I came. I have come to call sinners who are sick with sin. It's what I came to do. Jesus pursues relationship with sinners. He doesn't separate himself from them. And this is not Jesus overlooking or denying their sin, right? He doesn't say, no, these are good, righteous people. He's willing to call sin what it is. But he's doing it in a way uh, to, to say that they need a cure. Sinners are sick with sin, and they need a cure. Now, what you need to understand about religious people is this. It's not that they believe that they don't have sin. You're, you're hardly going to find a religious type who completely denies any sin in their life. Of course they know they have sin. But here's the essence of what the religious say. They're going to say, yes, I was a sinner, but then I did all this stuff. I kind of fixed myself up. I cleaned up my life. See, the essence of religion is our human effort to make ourselves acceptable to God. See, what they need God is just that little bump, just that little edge to just get to good enough, right? They know they're pretty good, and they need God just to give them that extra push over into the category of saved. Religion says this, I'll do these things, I'll clean this up, and then God will owe me, and he'll have to accept me. Religion is, I obey, and therefore I'm accepted. Now notice, did Jesus come to Levi when he was calling him and say, Levi, quit your job. Give back all you've stolen. Quit smoking. Quit fornicating. Get new friends. Hey, while you're at it, get on a Bible reading plan. Go to church. Get in a small group. And when I see improvement, I'll come back. I'll give you my seal of approval, and then you can follow me. Is that what he said? No. He just said, Levi, come, follow me. You see, religious people add God to their almost already perfect life. That's the basis of religion. Religion says, do these things, transform yourself, and then God will like you. Jesus says, come follow me and I'll transform you. Do you notice the difference there? It's slight, but it makes all the difference in the world. He's saying, I will change you from the inside out and I will make you new. But in order for that to happen, you have to recognize your need. In the same way, it's ridiculous for the doctor not to see sick patients. It's ridiculous for sick people not to recognize their need. It's like the gunshot victim bleeding out, coming in and going, I don't know really why I'm here. I mean, I do have this little cut on my finger. could probably use a Band-Aid for that, right? No, it's like they're saying, sit down, you're bleeding out. It's not, you need help. It's not just about getting our sin out there and just being honest about it. We actually need healing from it. This is a place, guys, where it's okay to not be okay, but we don't want to stay there either. So we recognize that we have problems, that we have need. We don't celebrate that, but we celebrate our Savior. So what is Jesus calling us to do? He's calling us to repent and believe the gospel, right? He's calling us to follow him. We have deep issues and sickness, and we can't pretend that it's not there. We need and there's not steps to take to make it better. We need a savior who can actually make us alive. You know, when I think about the church, I think about an oncology clinic. Nobody in the oncology clinic is hiding the fact that they have cancer, right? That, they know. That's why we're there. But do you see them celebrating it either? Like, hey, high five, stage four. No, of course not. 
There's a sober reality to the depth of their need. And they're all wanting a cure. That's what the church is supposed to be. And the beautiful reality is Jesus isn't only the doctor who sees sick patients. He's also the cure. He's the doctor who takes on your cancer. He's the doctor who takes on your sickness and gives you his health. He takes your death and he gives you his life. And the Pharisees can't stand it. They cannot stand it. And so they confront Jesus. And Jesus is saying, my mission is a success when a sinner comes to me seeking to be cured. God in his mercy will treat those who turn to him. And so very early on in this passage, we already start to see the lines being drawn between Jesus and the, the religious. And so there really are only two possible uh, responses to Jesus. You can either love him and follow him, and that's what he's calling you to today. Or you can reject him or find a way to dismiss him or find a way to make him irrelevant. We'll find that this crew eventually finds a way to kill him. And I'm not trying to create a false dichotomy here either. Sometimes the either or is actually a false dichotomy. But with Jesus, it either is a life of following him and loving him and trusting him, or it's a life of rejecting him outright. So as we come to a close in our time, I want to give some practical direction on some of the application I've already touched on. First, as it relates to following Jesus. We talked earlier about how obedience comes without conditions. So the question is, what, is, uh, what are those non-negotiables that need to be looked at to be negotiated with Jesus? What are those conditions that you're saying, I- I'll follow you, Jesus, if? Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's your work. Maybe it's possessions, finances. Maybe it's time, leisure. Whatever it is, there cannot be conditions to your obedience with Christ. I would really encourage you, exhort you to take time to, figure, to, to pray and ask, Lord, what are those conditions that are keeping me from following you? The second practical point of application would be um, thinking about who is eating at your table. Who, who are you going to be inviting to eat at your table who needs to hear and receive the grace and mercy and forgiveness of Jesus? Who in your networks and in your neighborhood needs an invitation to the meal where they can meet the real Jesus through you? And then lastly would be this. Have you recognized your own neediness and need for a savior? Have you recognized that not only do you need a doctor, but you need a cure? Jesus is both, and he's calling you. Accept his call and come to him. Let me pray.